This thing that we do in Christianity called preaching is really an odd thing in our modern world. And really, throughout human history, it's kind of been an odd thing in all of religious worship. The Christian understanding and the Christian practice of preaching is really not an understood thing as far as its effectiveness in our modern world, even though the reality is is that preaching, the revelation of God, has been central to everything that God's people have done from the very beginning. I mean, if you even think from Adam communicating God's word to Eve and his successive generations to Abraham preaching the covenant promises to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to his sons, or even Moses preaching, as it were, the promises of God to Israel, Joshua, some of the judges, Samuel, David, many of the kings, and certainly all of the men that we call the prophets, they've been preaching, and preaching has been central to what God's people have been doing from the beginning. Jesus, the living word, was the preacher of God's revelation. His apostles unveiled the revelation of God through preaching, down to the very elders, overseers, pastors, teachers that he calls and equips and gives to the church. Their primary role is to preach. Think about Christian history. In history, Our world has known seasons where Christian preaching was actually baked into the very rhythms of our society. You know, Sunday used to be a day that was untouched by secular society. Why? Because the worship of the church was so significant and preaching was right at the center point of it. I can still remember a time when preachers were some of the most significant influencers in our society and culture. But the world that we live in now is far less influenced by Christian preaching. And what is even more interesting to me is to watch the shift among so-called evangelicals think through what we do on the Lord's Day in this idea of preaching. Now, what do I mean when I refer to preaching? I'm referring to a public, authoritative announcement, explanation of God's word. That's what preaching is in essence. A man standing in front of a public audience and reading, explaining, urging that audience to respond appropriately to what God has revealed of himself in the Bible. That's preaching. But with the emergence of the social sciences, we are now under a persuasion, broadly speaking, that modern people are not impacted as they once were through that very definition of preaching that I just gave to you. Attention spans are too short for this approach to be effective. Learning styles, which is really popular in the last 30 to 40 years, learning styles are so varied that only a small minority of people, we're told, will even be able to make use of what we do in preaching. Too many people are visual learners, we are told, and they need pictures, or they respond better to music, or they have disorders that preclude them from sitting still too long, or some are just too imaginative and they need something like stories, not didactic explanations. The era of television and modern media consumption have so impacted the culture that we're told that very few today can actually tolerate a monologue. The emphasis on individual autonomy, individual authority, actually make authoritative preaching by one man to many people. Nowadays, it's an act of arrogance. And so, Christian preaching has been adapting It's been adapting. We want to try to equate things like telling stories about biblical themes as preaching. We replace monologues with dialogue. Perhaps you've seen some of that. Perhaps you've engaged in some of that. Music is elevated above speaking. Sermons are less an explanation of biblical texts and more practical talks that use Bible references to make life more self-fulfilling. The personality of speakers is highlighted above the content of the communication. That's not hard to see today. 
In fact, as we remove large wooden pulpits and replace them with skinny tables, music stands, none of that's inherently sinful or wrong. But what does it begin to emphasize? It emphasizes the speaker. And you see that, you feel that in the modern approach to preaching. It's more about the speaker than it is necessarily the content of what is spoken. The emphasis on the speaker is that he, if he's to be effective, if the church is to grow, if this is to be an effective work that we do, he is to be relatable, humorous, culturally attractive, casual, personally engaging, all of which can have some value and helpfulness. But it has now become the emphasis. It's now become the emphasis. I would encourage you, just go watch a typical introduction, video introduction, which is common to find on a church website today, and see what is emphasized. See how much is emphasized regarding the musical performance. How little is described about what is taught. I'm hearing, even among a number of evangelicals, that the approach that we commonly take to preaching is actually... Nothing more than a communication invention of the, the modern era that has no real biblical necessity involved in it. As times change and people change, so do the modes and means of communication need to change if we hope to be effective in changing our culture. Well, we've been changing this for a long, long time, actually. We've been changing what preaching looks like and feels like and sounds like and acts like for a long time. How's it, how's it going? How much more Christian is our culture today than it was 40 years ago? Some would say it's not even necessary to have a sermon anymore. It's not really even recommended that a man stand in front of a public audience and explain the content of the Bible and urge the audience to respond to it as if they were responding to God. That is the move that's coming. And it will increase. It will increase. But as we have been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians, what we have noticed from the very beginning of this book that Paul, from the very opening verses, has been instructing this church and reminding this church who is tempted to move away from the Apostle Paul and what he taught and how he taught them. He's reminding them of what he emphasized when he first came to them. And what was that? His preaching. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way at the beginning, he began this description of the three legs of true spiritual transformation. You remember them? In chapter 1, verse 3, he was bearing in mind, first, their work of faith, second, their labor of love, and third, their steadfastness of hope. And we noted when we went through that in the opening of this study of 1 Thessalonians, that's a virtual description of the entirety of the book. That first phrase, the work of faith, actually describes the emphasis of the content from chapter one of this book down to chapter three of this book. It's emphasized over and over the work of faith. And when you examine chapters one to three, what you find him talking about more than anything else is his preaching and their response to that preaching. There's a back and forth. Chapter 1, verse 5, down to verse 10 is an outline, as it were, of what he's going to do through chapters 1 through 3. In verse 5, he talks about the way he preached to them. And then in chapter 2, as we just finished studying, verses 1 to 12, he describes in even greater detail what that preaching looked like. Then in verse 6 of chapter 1, down to verse 10, he describes what their response was like to the church. He expands on that in chapter 2, here in the verse that we're going to consider all the way through the end of this chapter. In chapter 3, he'll go back. Here's what my preaching was like, and here's what your responses were like. And that displays the work of faith, the activity of having confidence in the person of Jesus Christ is found in how the word is brought in its preaching and how you then respond to that preaching. That's the work of faith. 
That's what all three of these chapters are about. And that preaching is done by a man announcing God's word as if that man actually represents God. We now have the completed revelation of God in the scriptures that was being unveiled as Paul was making his way around the ancient world. We now have it. And as we continue to do what we're called to do, and that is teach the content of this scripture through explaining it to the congregation and urging you to respond to it as if you're responding to God, that work of preaching continues. Now we just finished a detailed look at what preaching should be like, how it's brought to you by the person who's bringing the message. And that creates a legitimate spiritual ministry. We now turn and we look at the people who are hearing the preaching. How did the people respond to that preaching within a ministry that's truly spiritually legitimate? Well, we're going to see that in chapter 2, particularly in verses 13 through 16. This is the response. This is the response to the preaching of God's word. And here we're going to find different ways that people respond to the preaching of God's word. So as we did when we went through the first 12 verses, let me give you just a little road map here of where we're going to be. This won't take us near as long, just a couple of weeks probably. Probably. You know how it goes. Well, there's essentially two groups of people who respond to the word of God. It's not hard. You see this in all of life. In fact, you probably react to people this way. You react to them as if they're either a Christian or a non-Christian. Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who responds appropriately to the word. So we call them, and we'll see this in verses 13 to 14, those who genuinely welcome the word. That's one response. The other response is those who actively withstand the word of God. There's just two groups of people. There are those who genuinely welcome the word into their life and there are those who actively withstand the word. And that's how you can actually tell who is a Christian, who's welcoming the word into their life, who's standing opposed to the word, who's moving closer to the word, who's moving away from the word. We'll see that. In these, these lessons that we'll learn together. So this morning we're going to focus on the first. Those who genuinely welcome the word of God. And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 14. And again, it'll take us some time. So we'll, we'll look primarily just at verse 13 this morning. But what you're going to find in verses 13 to 14 is a description of those who genuinely welcome the word. It's a great picture of what is involved in receiving God's word in a genuinely saving way, in a truly spiritual way. So how is it that genuinely converted people actually respond to the word? Which is a good point for you to start asking yourself, do I see this in my heart? Do I see this in my life? Do I see me in my heart actively, actually, genuinely responding to the word? Does verse 13 and 14, do these verses describe me and my response to God's truth? Well, we're going to look at three different components to what people do with the word when they genuinely welcome it into their lives. Three different components of what people do with the word when they genuinely welcome it into their lives. This is very important for us to look at this morning. Very important that you see this very clearly because it highlights where you are with the Lord. First, the first component to what people do with the word when they genuinely welcome it is that they publicly identify themselves by the preached word. They publicly identify themselves by the preached word. Those who welcome the word are those who intentionally expose themselves to the regular preaching of God's word so much so that they are publicly identifying themselves with what is preached. Now, where do I get that from this passage? 
Well, look careful at me at verse 13. Look, look very careful with me at this verse. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you hear from us. Stop right there. That phrase, when you received the word of God, which you hear from us, is a description of their public identification with the preached word. And it is that for which Paul gives constant gratitude. In fact, he begins by saying, for this reason also. For what reason? Does this look back into how he preached the word? Or does it look forward into what they did with the word? Well, likely it's moving forward. And one of the reasons I say that is because he already began this statement of gratitude back in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always. It's almost the same phrase. We give thanks to God always for you. And then he launched into a major description of how he brought the word to them. Now he comes to another reason of why he's so grateful. And he's constantly grateful. And it's how they are responding to the word. So here's another reason he is so thankful for this church. It's not just because he saw God work in him as he brought the word to them. It's because he sees them receiving the word that he preached and how they received it. It gives him such gratitude to God. He sees the activity of God in it. So he's so grateful to God and how they received the word. Now look at that phrase, that when you received the word, that's the content of Paul's constant gratitude. They received it. That word received is an important word when Paul uses it. Paul uses this word 11 times in his letters and almost every one of these references describe an official kind of reception of Paul transferring biblical truth that is then officially accepted. They attach themselves outwardly, externally to what he brought them to. They said yes to that preaching. So much so they officially identify themselves with it. That word received refers to something very official in terms of I'm identifying myself now with that truth. Doesn't mean you were just exposed to it. It means you actually affirmed it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.1, you'll see the same idea. The gospel which I preach to you, which you also received. You affirmed it. Galatians 1.9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, you officially affirmed. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction, it doesn't just simply mean you were exposed to that instruction, you actually affirmed it as yours, you received it. Second Thessalonians 3, 6 refers to the tradition which you received from us. So this is an important term for Paul. You officially received it. They didn't reject it. They didn't hear it and then walk out of the room. They didn't refuse to come back. They came back every week. They started receiving it so much so that that reception actually identified who they were in the culture. It's more than just a nod of affirmation also. It's an official reception. It's a connection to doctrinal truth. And notice carefully, what is it that they received? What is it that they connected themselves to officially in their identity? What was it that they received? The word which you hear from us. This is a direct reference to his ongoing preaching ministry to them as an infant church. He was preaching the word, the message, literally the phrase reads in the original, the heard from us message, the heard from us message. It caused one Greek commentator to describe this phrase as the word of preaching received by the Thessalonians. This is a reference to preaching, the heard from us message, the preached message. And what is it they heard from Paul? The word of God. 
the word of God which you heard from us. We delivered, Paul is saying here, a revelation to you that has its origin, its source, its authority in God. And you identified yourself with our preaching as the word of God. So it isn't that they simply identified themselves to Paul and said, we're the Paulinists. We follow Paul. That's not the idea here. Paul preached, Silas preached, Timothy preached. But what did they preach? The word. And this group of people came back all the time regularly to hear, to expose themselves to, to sit under what they believed was the word that comes from God. It's a message that comes from God to these people. That doctrinal content that finds its origin in God and yet it was delivered by men. That's biblical preaching. That's biblical preaching. Paul is preaching the revelation of God and they receive it as identifying themselves with God's message. They were a people connected to preaching because the preaching was the revelation of God. So what we want to emphasize on our website is not the preacher. It's not. I don't need a page on the website to describe me. What we emphasize is God speaking to us. That's what we emphasize. That's what happens here on the Lord's day. God in his word speaks to us. And what we identify ourselves with is not the special kind of person that he puts in the pulpit to speak to us, but it is God's word that identifies us to the rest of the culture. Really doesn't matter who it is that's in the pulpit. What matters is, is God speaking to us from that pulpit? It's this official identification with truth that was being communicated to them through preaching. And they exposed themselves to it. They did it eagerly. They did it purposefully. They did it intentionally. They did it regularly. It was something they actually identified themselves with. Friends, you understand that's what you're saying when you actually join a church. You realize that? You're not joining a church to say, I like that group. No, I hope you like that group. I, don't, I, I hope it's not that you, I don't like them, but I'll go anyway. Hopefully it is, yes, I, I love these people. But I'm here because God's word is preached here. And I'm exposed to God's word. And we all as a body are being instructed by God when we come together. So I want to be known as a people who are connected to God, which is what you're saying when you join a church. And, and can I also, I'm going to anyway, I'm, I'm, can I also say this is what you're saying when you don't join a church? I don't, I don't necessarily affirm that. I'm not identifying myself with that because I still, I don't want to be overly committed to that group. What are you saying then? Who's still Lord? It's worth you thinking about. When you join, you're saying God's word is preached here and I'm identifying myself with that. So how important is it that the one speaking is actually explaining the revelation of God and how significant is it for you to make sure that what you're officially identifying yourself with is God's revelation being communicated in the pulpit? How important is it for you to hold the one speaking accountable to tie himself to the text of the scripture? That's more important than anything else in the world. So if you're a person who genuinely welcomes the word of God, it will be because you have intentionally and publicly identified yourself with the truth of God that's being communicated by those charged with preaching that truth. Ask yourself, how significant, how significant is biblical preaching for you? How significant is that to you? Is it your Sunday form of entertainment? Or does it really breathe life into your soul? 
Do you find yourself eager to sit under biblical proclamation? Do you find yourself, I I love that time of coming together as a church and the word of God opens us and we sing the truth of God. We pray together over the truth of God. We read it together. We hear it explained together. We sing our response. We pray our response together. We encourage one another through the week to, to do what God has called us to do. And we can't wait to do it again and again. It's the highlight for us. We eagerly embrace it. There's one who does. Do you want more of it? When you talk to people about why you're a part of the church that you're a part of? Is it because of the truth that is preached or is there something else that's more fundamentally engaging to you about the church than that? I mean, what draws you here? Is it our coffee? Probably not. (laughs) Though it's a lot better than it used to be, friends. There's There's a number of things it could be. But is it really the word? Is it that I want to be where I hear God's word every single Lord's day? Is it the style, the facilities, the friendliness, the parking, the greeters, the children's ministry, activities that are going on through the church, the excitement that you feel, the professionalism that you sense? I'm not saying all those things are wrong or bad. But is that why you would come? Where does the preaching of God's word fit? Is it second or third on the list? Is it something you'd say, well, you know, the preaching where I go is okay, but I really come for, you fill in the blank. Think about that carefully. Those who genuinely welcome the word of God are the kinds of people who publicly identify themselves with the preached word. The truth becomes fundamental to their identity as Christians. That's the first component. The first component found in those who genuinely welcome the word. Let's look at a second. The second component that actually defines those who genuinely welcome the word, it actually, the second component drives the first one. Secondly, they internally embrace the preached word. They internally embrace the preached word. So again, as we begin in verse 13, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the preached word of God... When you officially adopted it, what did you do with it? You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, I think this may be one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible about preaching. In fact, I pulled a bunch of preaching books off the shelf. I pulled a bunch of theological books off the shelf and I was just going to the scriptural index to see where they referenced this verse to describe preaching. And I found it in most most of the books because it is a significant verse. But but I I really believe it's even more extensive than what I was finding in those books because they might have referred to it, but they didn't really unpack it. But this is a profound statement to me. Maybe one of the most profound in all of the scripture as to what preaching is and how we think about it. Notice how it's described here. They accepted that preached word. They accepted it. That is a significant term here. It's the word decomai. It could be a synonym with the word translated received, paralambano previously, But it's used here to emphasize a different nuance. It's not just an official, you accepted it as if this was the defining definition of your life. 
This is different. The first word is an official definition of you. This second word describes something more internal, something more personal. You, this is where we get the idea, you welcomed the word. You didn't just sign the doctrinal statement. You signed the doctrinal statement because it reflected who you were internally. You were so moved by the word that you said, yes, I will identify my life by that word. You accepted it. You welcomed it into your life in the most transformative way. You outwardly identified yourself with the preached word when you officially received it as your your own doctrine that defines you because you had internally embraced that word that is preached as God's personally transforming message. But look carefully at what they accepted the word as. You accepted it not as the word of men. So this wasn't just philosophical reasoning. This wasn't just another religious opinion. This wasn't just another cultural idea of how to live life. This isn't just another way to live a better life. You did not accept it as the word of men. Here's the problem. Who was preaching it? Men. Paul, Silas, Timothy. And likely when Paul, Silas, and Timothy left, there were others who took their place and they're preaching it. So it was a word that was certainly preached by men, but you never treated it like it was something you were hearing from a human. This is really profound. When you heard the concepts explained, the details described, telling you what to believe, explaining why you should believe it, You did not welcome that into your personal life as if it were someone's well-reasoned, logically argued opinion. You didn't compare it to all of the other philosophical ideas that were going on and say, hey, how can we take the best of the world's ideas and the best of God's ideas and put those together? Wouldn't that be really significant? Or as many say today, hey, there are things that are true in the world that the world observes true with a little t. And there are things that God says true with a big T. Well, we can just put those together and respond to that. That isn't what they're doing. This is not the word of men. Everything you're hearing as it's preached to you is in fact the revelation of God himself. You didn't accept it, welcome it into your life as if it were a word from a human being. You accepted it for, as Paul says in this text, for what it truly is, for what it really is in truth. And what is it? The word of God. You welcome the preached word for what the preaching actually is, the word of God, the message that comes from God. It's as if God is speaking to us. That's utterly profound. That is completely frightening to me. It should be sobering to every one of us. It should actually captivate our attention every single Sunday. Well, I, I'm kind of tired today. I didn't eat a good breakfast. As a matter of fact, I didn't eat much. It's getting close to noon. I'm getting hungry. I forgot to bring my power bar for how long this, I see some of you out there nibbling. (laughs) I won't say who. It's okay. I'm tired. I, I don't know if I can pay attention. Are you kidding me? If you really thought God was speaking to us, you'd say, huh, I'm sleepy. It's not that big a deal. Take it or leave it. They responded to the preaching and the explanation, the heralding of God's word as if God were speaking to them. Paul actually here equates his preaching to God's word. That's what he says. You say, well, that's because he was an apostle. He was somebody who was officially revealing the truth of God as he spoke, as he wrote. Well, not everything that he spoke and not everything that he wrote ended up being scripture, did it? So I don't think that's the idea here. Seems to suggest that the preaching of not just the apostle, but the people who are preaching to them, even his other two associates who were with him, 
the ongoing preached word that they identified themselves with, they looked at as hearing the word of God. It is worth us thinking about this, friends, to the degree that any preacher is accurately explaining the apostolically revealed truth of God as revealed in the pages of the written revelation of God, the scriptures. We are just as equally speaking God's revelation as the apostles were themselves, and that means we are hearing God's word. The preacher is not inspired. The truth that is revealed that the preacher is explaining is inspired. The apostles themselves were not the ones inspired. The writings that they left us were inspired. And this is not a new concept. Again, I was pulling out some resources and I found one that you probably go through a lot, the second Helvetic Confession. You ever go through that one? I know, preacher nerdity here. It's a 16th century Swedish doctrinal statement. I want you to listen to it. It says scripture, 16th century, so 1500s, right? Sweden. It's not your next door neighbor. Scripture is the word of God. Again, the self-same apostle to the Thessalonians, when he says, you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, First Thessalonians 2.13. For the Lord himself has said in the gospel, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of my father speaking through you. Therefore, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then it makes this statement. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. This is why I think this is one of the most profound verses on preaching in the Bible. That the preacher should understand that when he is addressing the church from the scriptures, he is Speaking God's word to God's people. God is speaking. The preacher is not God. The truth is coming from God. And we should hear it that way. To the degree that the preacher is accurately communicating the meaning of the Bible, the listener is actually hearing God speak. That is profound. That is stunning. That's what preaching is. This is why preaching can't be a dialogue. God is not asking us to have a conversation with him. He speaks, we listen. This is why it's not a narrative. He's not just telling a story. This is why... It really can't be any other means. God speaks and we listen. Preaching is not a talk. It's not entertainment. It's not a suggestion. It's not just factual instruction. It's not just stimulating thinking. It's delivering God's message as if God were speaking. It's an authoritative public announcement from God. When Peter talked about spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4. Do you remember what he said about those who have a spiritual gift of speaking? As each one has received a special gift, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Again, this is not just Paul. Peter is saying the same thing. It's not just the second Helvetic confession in the 1500s. 
How many times did the Old Testament prophets begin and end their sermons with, Thus says the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.16 indicates that all scripture is breathed out by God. Inspired, it's breathed out by God. And a few verses later, in 2 Timothy 4.2, Timothy is called to proclaim, publicly proclaim, preach that God-breathed word. Timothy's voice then was to become the conduit of God's word to the people. So back in our text, the people in Thessalonica accepted it for what it really is what it really is in truth, what it truly is, the word of God. Now, I just want to ask you a question. How does that happen? How does it happen that people actually take the word and they say, that is from God. We're hearing him speak. How does that happen? What occurred inside of the Thessalonians who had heard many other philosophers speak in their culture? Remember, there were paid professional philosophers who roamed the streets, gathered disciples, This was common in in their world. It's common in our world. So in all of the ideas and all of the philosophies that are out there, how does it happen that someone comes to listen to a sermon and says, God has spoken to us? That's a supernatural work, isn't it? I think it is because if you remember what the Bible says about us before we come to faith in Jesus, the Bible actually says that no one naturally seeks after God, Romans 3.11. All are dead to God in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Before coming to Christ, our minds are darkened. There is no true spiritual understanding in us, says Ephesians 4.17. And if left to ourselves, we would never accept the things of God in this book as being from God or respond to it as if God were calling us to himself. If he doesn't act on us, we don't listen to the Bible as if it's anything other than a word among men. This is a part of what God does in divine regeneration. That's the theological idea that God awakens the heart, the dead heart, to truth. He sovereignly moves on a human heart and pulls away the spiritual scales from the eyes and lets you see, and not just see, but want and desire and long for and believe in the Christ that you are seeing in the pages of Scripture so much so that you run to him, you cast yourself at his feet, and you say, you lead me, you be Lord over my life. How does that happen to spiritually dead people? By God's sovereign work in their hearts. It's what Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 refers to. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, listen to this, in whose case, those who are perishing, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If God doesn't open your heart to see the light and want the light and draw you to the light in your heart, you remain blinded by the God of this world to the light of the gospel. Paul even made a significant statement about this, of where he got this truth that he preaches and how people respond to it. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2? You can turn if you want to that passage. It's so significant. Verse 6. Let me just read a lengthy portion of it. 1 Corinthians 2. Listen to verse 6. He's referring to himself as an apostle and those who are teaching and revealing the apostolic word. In verse 6, we, these apostles, 
We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. What does he mean by that? This is not a word from man. It's not a word, a human word. But we speak God's wisdom. What does that mean? When we're preaching to you and giving you the word, we're not just talking about something that's coming from man. It's God's wisdom. It's his words. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, here's the, here's the critical piece, to us, God revealed them through whom? The Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That is a deep statement. We have received the Spirit, why? So that we would hear the words as the Spirit's words. Which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. What does that mean? When the Spirit comes, he unveils the truth and you see it for what it really is. And the natural man never receives the spiritual truths of God as if they were the word of God. What is it that causes you to say the Bible is the very word of God? What causes you to do that? This is what is referred to in Ephesians 2, 5, when God took spiritually dead people and caused them to be raised to life. It's what Jesus means when he said that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. It's what happens when you are, as John 3 says, born again. Something inside you clicked so that you started listening to the scripture as if it were God directly speaking to you. You welcomed it. You accepted it. You embraced it. You were convinced by it. Not because you went and you studied every verse in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you did it in the original languages and you compared it to all the other religious books that are out there in the world and you found that the Bible was more compelling, more logical, more well-reasoned than all the other religions of the earth and so I'll, I'll land on the Bible. How many of you did that? Raise your hand. I want to see. Because I want to meet you. Because I don't think that kind of person exists. And even if they did exist, and they did all that work, they never came to accept the Bible because it was simply more logical, well-reasoned, better argued, and it is. But that's not why they accepted it. It's what John Calvin referred to as the internal witness, the internal testimony of the Spirit to the truth of the Bible. I want you to listen to John Calvin's words on this. He said, credibility of doctrine is not established until we are persuaded beyond doubt that God is the author. Thus, the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. The prophets and the apostles do not boast either of their keenness or of anything that obtains credit for them as they speak, nor do they dwell upon rational proofs. 
For even if the scripture wins reverence for itself by its own majesty, it seriously affects us only when it is sealed upon our hearts through the Spirit. Therefore, illumined by its power, we believe neither by our own nor by anyone else's judgment that the Scripture is from God. But above human majesty, but, pardon me, but above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God Himself, that it, The scripture has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. We seek no proofs, no marks of genuineness upon which our judgment may lean, but we subject our judgment and wit to it as to a thing far beyond any guesswork. What is he saying? You believe the scripture is from God because the spirit convinced you. The Spirit convinced you of that. Martin Luther would say, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. This is not talking about your experience when you're reading the Bible and you tell yourself, my experience is the Word of God. No. You read the Scripture and you say, that is from God and I must respond to it appropriately. God has spoken to me. That's the inward testimony of the Spirit to the authority of the Bible. And it happens when you are completely confident in the source of the Scripture being from God. That is the Spirit doing the work of God through His Word in you. Which, by the way, notice our text again. He reminds them that this Word that they have accepted, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, is the Word of God. What is it doing? See that last phrase? Which is performing, it's a present tense, is, is performing its work in you who believe. It's doing a work in you who believe. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that word teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us. That's the work of the word, isn't it? Have you ever felt that? Some of you have said, hey, You were talking to me today. I saw you looking right at me when you said it. Maybe. Probably just in this section here because that's the only people I look at really. No. That's the work of the word. Correcting, reproving, challenging, instructing us. 2 Peter 2.23 says that the word causes us actually to be born again. You ever met anybody like that? Hopefully you know it in your own heart. You're hearing the word and it convicts them and they say, I must believe. 2 Peter 2.2, it's what grows us and matures us. That's the work that the spirit is doing in the word. If you really want to gaze into the profound work that the word does, you look at something like Psalm 19, especially verses 7 to 8, and you'll see that the word actually restores the soul or converts it. It makes wise the simple people. It actually rejoices the heart. Have you found that to be true? In those who believe, you encounter the word and there's a joy and a satisfaction and a happiness of your soul, even when the circumstances are absolutely debilitating. There's a joy in your heart that God's truth is at work. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes so that you actually see things the way they really are. That's the work of the word. Or if you really want to dwell deeply on the work that the spirit is doing through the word, Read all 176 verses of Psalm 119. That's all about the work of the word. Like in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Why would it be true that someone would think about it all day long? Because it's from God. He goes on. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. There's the work of the word. Verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers because your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. 
I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. That's the work of God's word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances because you yourself have taught me. How does the psalmist look at the scriptures? You are teaching me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. What causes you to hate falsehood, love truth, God's spirit at work in your life through his word? Do you see it? This is the work that the Spirit does through the Word as it is communicated, as it's preached. Those who welcome the Word are those who internally embrace the preached Word as if it were God's very Word to us. I don't know how we could listen to preaching differently than that then. How how do we listen to God's word being preached and not be moved or stirred or challenged or encouraged or helped or strengthened, convicted, emboldened. You can't walk away from here and dismiss the sermon as just someone else's opinion as long as the sermon is accurately tied to the text of scripture. And if it is, you have heard God speak today. And what you do with that shows where you are with God. Because you've just been brought face to face with him. And he has spoken to you and you have heard And what you now do with it shows what you think of him. A sign of the genuineness of your conversion is whether you genuinely welcome the word into your heart, into your soul. Well, what did the Thessalonians think about God? It was very clear, wasn't it? Their lives were transformed. They completely, convincingly, because of how they responded to the preaching of God's word, trusted the truth of God and their life changed. They publicly identified themselves by the preached word because they internally embraced the preached word as God's word. Now, how significant was that embrace? That brings us to the third component of those who genuinely welcome the word and We'll look at that next week. Sorry, I'm out of time. But before I finish, I was moved by this because I, that opening phrase in verse 13 is very significant to me. Paul kept thanking God I mean, just every time he thought about them, gratitude just welled up in his heart because of how they love the word. And I think back on the places where I've served God in pastoral ministry, and I think about that little tiny church in rural Texas and the sweetness of our fellowship, and I just think about what God did, and I'm so grateful. I just rehearsed in prayer this morning names. Some of those people are in heaven right now and they're in heaven because God changed their life during that time and they just so loved the word it wasn't an influential church in any cultural sense but it was so full of people who loved the word I remember that small church right in the middle of the three million people who lived in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles and they, they came and they just loved the word. I can remember Daryl Norris's face, a deacon who had been at that church for 30 years. He was a very influential person, high up in the insurance world and significant person culturally. One of our deacons was Frank Sinatra's personal pilot. 
they weren't at that church for anything other than they loved the scripture. And to watch their eyes light up. I remember when Daryl understood a concept for the first time. I remember when Johnny, that pilot, came up and says, I've never seen this before. And his life was changing and transforming. Well, that just so much gratitude. And I cannot say how much I thank God for this church. For this church, there is a palpable love for the truth of God's word here. It's what we talk about. It's what we, we think about. It's what we're encouraging with. We, we text it to one another. We cry over it. We pray over it. We rejoice in it together. There's such a love for the truth of God. Why is that? Never take for granted. Never take that for granted. It is a, it's pure joy to preach here because there's people who are eager to hear and respond to God's word. That's why I, I, don't, I don't preach many other places because I like preaching here because there's just a, such a love for the word. So I thank God for Summit Woods Baptist Church. I thank God for you God is at work among us, is he not? Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by our time in your word. Humbled to think that you would meet with us every week in this gathering. And you would speak to us. You would love us enough to confront us. You would love us enough to come alongside with the burdens that we are carrying. And you would help us. You would love us enough so that you would, in your word, through the voice of a preacher, tell us what you desire of us. To think, to believe, and how to respond. And by the sovereign work of your spirit, you bring to our minds specific, you illuminate our minds with specific ways that we should respond to what is communicated. What a joy. What a humbling joy to know that you will come every week with your word and address us. Every day that we open it up and we begin to read it, We're coming face to face with you in your word. When we break open the Bible and we sit down together and we're talking together over the word, we're we're realizing that your word is a significant, the most significant influence in life. But again, to think that we're all here today and we have heard you speak to us the creator of the universe, the one who made heaven and earth. That's humbling. And I pray for those who are not humbled by that, who discount the word, who find no value in it and think it is a small thing, insignificant or unnecessary. They could take it or leave it. Lord, that's the heart that is desperate to have the spirit move upon it so that the scales could be pulled from their eyes and the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ could shine into it so they could see that the creator has been offended, that sinfulness has drawn them away from your lordship and yet in love you have provided the way through the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who has sacrificed himself to receive just wrath in their place so that those who would believe and trust and turn from sin and embrace you as Lord would have life that never ends. Father, I pray that you would do that divine work today and awaken dead hearts by your truth and change them transform them.
by the work of the Spirit. Enliven their hearts to see Christ and love him. Father, we thank you for this gathering and what it means and what we do here every week. I pray that this time would sober us and that we would never take for granted what it is that we're doing together here. We pray for this. We anticipate its work in us. In the name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Let's stand together.